Uh, if you were here last week, you noticed that we reached uh, the narrative highlight of this part of our sermon series as the story of the Exodus continues. Last week, we looked at the Exodus itself, the moment when God's people exited, which is what Exodus means, the moment they exited Egypt, um, expressing the fullness of the, the deliverance that God had for his people. But if you were here, you might have noticed that as we read from Scripture, I read chapter 11 and then the end of chapter 12, and I skipped over this whole chunk right in the middle. And that's because in the middle of telling the story of the deliverance of his people, the Lord stopped, and the Holy Spirit inspired these verses to declare a national holiday to commemorate the event that we were hearing about. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at this first part of chapter 12, the story of the Passover. And I'm going to be reading chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, and then skipping down and reading 24 through 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then... They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In verse 24. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when the children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. This is the word of the Lord. I know many of you celebrated Thanksgiving this past week. I don't know what traditions you have, but I know that in some houses, during the Thanksgiving meal, there's time taken to retell the story of the first Thanksgiving 
to recall the beginning of the settling of our young nation, remembering the times of difficulty, but also the times of blessing, the challenges, but the, the relationships that were built, and, and thinking down to today and basically including ourselves in that story, recalling that this is not just a historical event, but this is part of our story. We are written in to this story. And we celebrate it because we believe that we have a story that's worth remembering. A story so important that we've built a tradition around it so that we would not forget because we know it's important to remember how we got here. When we forget that, things tend to go off track, don't they? Well, the Passover of God's people in Exodus served much the same purpose. In verses 24 and 25, we see the Lord said, You will observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. So this is something you're going to do year in, year out. The Passover was not just one night. The Passover was one night every year. Because we don't need to just believe something once and then move on our merry way. Believing is something we have to keep doing. Because what we believe becomes what we do. And that becomes who we are. When the people of God, as we saw, see later in the Old Testament, when they stop celebrating the Passover, they forget the deliverance of the Lord. And then they begin to forget Him, which leads them to self-destructive choices and the loss of all the good things that the Lord had for His people. And so God commanded His people, and He does so today as well, God commanded His people to remember and to celebrate the way that He had delivered them. So in the Passover, we see not only deliverance from Egypt, we also see how God intends to deliver all His children through the sacrifice of His firstborn, the Lamb of God. And so He gives to us a celebration so that we would remember. The Passover was about remembering. It was to bring these important things to mind. And there's two things, especially, that I want us to see that the Passover reminds us. And two things that every time we come to the table of the Lord that we ought to remember. And the first is to remember your danger. It's significant that God commanded the Israelites to begin their year with this celebration. Beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this, this first month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And then down to verse 6, you take that lamb and keep it until the fourteenth day, and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now pause and consider that that was their New Year celebration. That was how they began every year with the sacrifice of a lamb. And what that reminded them was what the Lord did on that night in Egypt. In verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The Passover memorialized a significant event, but it was not at its root, a happy event. It was a terrifying event. The Lord struck down the firstborn of man and beast of every household in all of Egypt. Every household in Egypt, including the Israelite household, 
The only exception were the homes where they had painted the blood of the Passover lamb around the door. Now that might seem like a very unhappy topic to begin focusing on at the beginning of every year. But notice, not only were they to repeat that process every year, but they were to explain it and its meaning. You see in verses 26 and 27, when your children ask, why are we doing this? What do you mean by this? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians but spared our houses. We need to speak of these things. We need to be reminded of them because we need to remember the danger from which we are saved. Without danger, there is no salvation. The word salvation itself implies, requires, that there be some kind of danger from which you're being saved. And salvation is only as great as the danger you're saved from. When Chicken Little began telling everyone, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, people weren't very inclined to believe Chicken Little. I don't know if it was a he or a she. I'm going to go with he. People weren't very inclined to believe him. No one felt compelled to seek safety. They didn't agree or believe that there was a real danger. And likewise, when we speak over and over of needing to be saved or of being saved, and people don't understand the reality of the danger, or perhaps we ourselves in our own hearts don't take seriously the magnitude of our danger, Talking of salvation ends up sounding like Chicken Little running around saying, you need to be saved, you need to be saved. I don't. I'm in no danger. When I'm trying to share my faith with someone or even speaking to someone who's been visiting our church and is looking to become a part of it, we like to ask diagnostic questions. And when someone says that they've been saved or that they are saved, I like to ask, saved from what? For many people, when you press down on that topic, they're thinking of just, I'm saved from the big bad world out there. Or I am saved from the devil. Or I am saved from having a meaningless life. I am saved from being lonely. I am saved from being ignorant. And all of those things are true, but they are not what you at heart have been saved from. None of those things tell the whole story. And the Passover was a reminder to God's people of what they were saved from. Passover was a reminder that an encounter with a holy God could only end in judgment on the sinner. And when we forget this, we forget who God is. He describes himself in later chapters of Exodus, chapter 34. The Lord describes himself as a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, We like all that part. But who will by no means clear the guilty. The problem, brothers and sisters, is not God. The problem is in us. All humanity, each and every person is guilty before a holy God, a God who punishes sin. We confessed earlier when we used Psalm 15 for our confession. Psalm 15 is supposed to frighten you. Psalm 15 is supposed to humble you. Psalm 15 begins saying, who can stand in the hill of the Lord? Who will abide in His holy place? Who can be in the presence of God? And then it begins to tell you exactly who. Only those with clean hands and a pure heart 
who doesn't tell lies, who doesn't believe falsehood, who doesn't desire and pursue the wrong things, who doesn't treasure and value the wrong people. And if you're reading that with an honest and sincere heart, you, you should probably stop after the first line, clean hands and pure heart, and go, oh no. Oh no, I am in trouble. And it's not just that I'm excluded from the presence of God. But if he is a consuming fire, as Scripture describes him, and I am tender, there is a verse in Scripture that describes it that way. It says the sinner will be like tender and God will be the flame. We will be consumed by his justice. The problem is that every person is guilty before a holy God who punishes sin. If we know that we have sinned, and do not understand our danger, then we don't understand what it means to say that God is holy. He will not endure and abide sin. I want to read two passages of Scripture, both of them a little bit longer, describing encounters with a holy God. In Isaiah 6, the prophet says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw him sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. These are mighty, giant titans of warrior angels, the seraphim. And they each have six wings, with two covering their face, with two covering their feet, and using two to fly. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice, just of the voice of the seraphim. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees a glimpse of the holiness of God. And he says, I'm lost. Woe is me. He could have Psalm 15 in the back of his mind. I cannot stand in the presence of God's holy place. I cannot ascend the hill of the Lord. I don't have clean hands and a pure heart. I have unclean lips. And the people around me have unclean lips. I am undone. But that's not just Old Testament. That's not Old Testament scary, New Testament happy. Because if we continue in the New Testament... God doesn't dial down the justice and take it down a notch. He doesn't reduce the holiness through Jesus. If anything, He takes it up a level. And in Revelation 1, the Apostle John, who walked the earth with Jesus Christ, sees Jesus in His glory and describes it like this. He is one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around His chest. The hairs of His head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In His right hand He held seven stars, and from His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and His face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. And that's what it's like to encounter Jesus in His holiness. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is Jesus with a flaming expression. And you fall at His feet in terror as though dead. God is terrifyingly holy. And by our very nature, we are rebels against Him. Ephesians 2 describes us as, by nature, children of wrath. By our nature, 
we are objects upon whom God directs His wrath because we have sinned against Him. We confess our sin in our worship to remember this so that we do not forget in the midst of all of our singing and praying and praising, we don't forget that apart from Christ, we are in deep danger from the holy justice of God. We are not good people seeking a spiritual high or enlightenment. We are rebels against God and we face the consequences of our rebellion. And this matters greatly because if you do not and cannot appreciate the consequences of your rebellion, the nature of your sin, the depths of your danger, then you cannot, you will not experience the beauty of your salvation. So do not paper over, do not belittle, do not, do not downplay your own sin or the sins of others. Do not pretend that God is so good-natured that He won't mind. If we do not understand the danger, then we will not flee to the safety of the cross because in the cross we see what God finally does with sin. He strikes down the Lamb of God who bore the sin of the world. That's the danger we are in. Until you remember the danger from which you are saved, you will not appreciate the deliverance that comes in Christ. So remember your danger. That is what the Passover communicated in showing a dead lamb that had to die because of a holy God. It reminded the people of their danger. But the death of the Lamb doesn't only remind us that we need to be saved. It also shows us how we are saved. So as we celebrate and as we remember what God has done, remember your danger, but also remember your deliverance. The way of God's salvation was closely related to the danger from which we are saved. Again, looking at verse 12, the Lord said that He was going to pass through the land of Egypt and strike the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods, He would execute judgment because He was the Lord. Death was coming to every household. And it had to because God is holy. He is just. He can't just skip over a house. He can't just turn a blind eye towards sin and injustice and say, yeah, it's not too, I'm not going to worry about that. You know, to do that, he would be giving up his very nature, his very holiness. There would be no justice in the universe. Justice must be done. The wages of sin is death, and you have to pay sin its wages. So God saves us, yes, but he does not do so by abandoning his justice. God does not fail to be just and to be holy even while he's saving us. That's why he'll only save us through a sacrifice. This is why Hebrews 9 says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Because if God forgives but does not punish sin, then there is no justice. He ceases to be holy. The sacrifice shows that death, the penalty of sin, has already taken place. Death would visit every home in Egypt that night, either the death of the firstborn in that house or the death of the lamb that was sacrificed in their place. And from that point on, God would use the idea of sacrifice in the temple worship of Israel. God would use sacrifice to remind the people what sin causes. What sin costs is a life. But also how salvation would be accomplished. With each lamb, whether the Passover lamb or in the temple worship, each animal that died, each time blood was shed, it said two things. It said 
Your sin deserves your death, but God will graciously supply a substitute to take your place, to bleed for you, to die where you should have died. Every sacrifice pointed to the ultimate plan of God to save all his people from sin and death forever. He would do it finally through the death of his firstborn, Jesus Christ, the lamb, the Passover lamb, every lamb, every bull, every goat that was sacrificed was just a placeholder, just a temporary sign pointing to what God was going to do to forever save his children. And here's something I love about all this. It wasn't Moses or Aaron or the people who came up with the idea. The Passover was not Moses's idea. The people of Israel didn't sit around and say, well, God has said there's going to be this judgment. But wait, guys, hear me out. What if, what if we killed a lamb and put its blood on the door and then when God comes to strike down the firstborn, he says, oh, somebody's already died here. I can just keep going. No, that's ridiculous. That's not how it worked. The Passover was God's idea. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, down to verse 3. The Lord said to tell Israel to take a lamb for every household. The Passover lamb was God's idea. It is God who makes a way to save his people. It's not that we seek after God and convince him to do something to help us. It's God who initiates salvation. It's God who knows our danger and God who says, I have a way to save my people. It is God who steps in even when we are not seeking Him. As Romans 5 tells us, when we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to Him by the death of His Son. Not that we used to be enemies, we changed our mind, and God said, well, i got to do something about the sin problem. Let me fix it. No, we were still enemies, and God said, I will send my Son to die in the place of my enemies. And that's how you will be brought back to me. So the Passover was not a time for anyone in Israel to look at the table and say, Behold, look at what I have done. I have done something that will please God. I have done something to secure our safety. Rather, the Passover was a time to say, Look, look at what God has done. See what God has given us. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He has given us a table that reminds us of His salvation through sacrifice. And it has to be a sacrifice. It was not enough to just have the lamb in the house. It was not enough to just have it wandering around. The lamb had to be slain. It had to be put to death. And its blood put on the door as described in verses 7 and 13. They're to take the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. And the blood would be a sign on the houses where you are. And when the Lord saw the blood, He would pass over and no plague would befall or destroy them when He struck the land of Egypt. The blood was not designed so that God would know who to spare and, and who not to spare. God knew their hearts. God doesn't need to see the blood on the doorpost to know what to do. The blood on the door was for the sake of the people inside. It was an act of faith. It was an expression that they believed and trusted the God who had commanded them to do it. The God who had promised that that blood would save their lives. 
The blood communicated, yes, I know and I believe that you are a holy God and I believe that you are coming with judgment and I believe and trust that for whatever reason that I don't understand and I'm not going to argue with, you've said that this is the way that I will be safe and so I'm going to do what you asked me to do because I trust you. They could then look at the blood of the Lamb on the door and be reminded that God had made them a promise, a promise of deliverance. And now, people of God, we have what the Passover lamb only pointed to. In 1 Corinthians 5, we are told that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The Passover lamb pointed us to Christ. The blood of Jesus, like the blood of the Passover lamb, reminds us that we are safe because someone else died in our place. Just as the firstborn that night of the Passover, probably sat trembling at the table as the Lord went through Egypt. I'm a firstborn in my household. And I don't know about you, but I would have been looking out on that door every few minutes. Is the blood still out there? I could look and know that because of that, I have the promise of God that I am safe. We now look at the blood of Christ and are reminded that God has made a promise of deliverance. In 1 Corinthians 10, in speaking of the the communion table, the Lord's Supper, the Apostle writes, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The blood that was on the door was a participation in the sacrifice of the Lamb. All who were in that household under the blood participated in the death of that lamb and were saved by it. All who partake of the body and blood of Christ participate in Him. They share in the sacrifice that He gives. When we consider the blood of Christ, whether we are holding the cup or whether we are singing nothing but the blood of Jesus or meditating on it, our response is to be reminded that in Christ, God did what I could never do for myself. He fully saved me. It is a cup of thankfulness, a cup of humility. The blood of Christ removes any shred of boasting over others, any hint of competitiveness or pride, as well as any self-doubt or insecurity, because the blood reminds us that it's nothing you did that does the delivering. It is the Lord who provided the Lamb. It is the Lamb who was slain. And it is all, from beginning to end, the gift of God. Remember your deliverance. It's interesting to note that in, in Exodus 12, the Lord calls upon His people to celebrate this forever. That's a long time, isn't it? The night that Jesus was betrayed, when He had the Last Supper with His disciples, they were eating a Passover meal. And as He ate that meal with His disciples, He transformed it. He invested it with new meaning. So that when his disciples celebrate it from then on out, and not just once a year anymore, he said, but as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of him. They would celebrate and remember God's deliverance a little differently. It was no longer the blood of the lamb on the table. That's that's the biggest difference. Is that when we celebrate this now, there is no mutton. There's no lamb carcass on the table. We're not out here sacrificing a lamb. Because the Lamb that takes away our sins rose and is not dead anymore. 
But forever still is a long time. Are we going to be gathering once a week, once a month, once a quarter, once a year in the new heavens and new earth to stand around the table and have the bread and share the cup? Well, let's, just, let's listen to what it's like. How are we going to celebrate this forever? We are told that we will be feasting in the new heavens and new earth at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And listen to what John sees when he is given a vision of the throne room of God in Revelations 5. I saw a lamb. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Here we have the lamb that has already been sacrificed. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and your blood, by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, even as we sang this morning, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, forever and ever we will be praising the lamb that was slain, whose very death reminds us of the danger from which we were redeemed and whose sacrifice reminds us that we have been delivered. And so we sing His praises. We remember and we celebrate forever what God has done. And He has given us a table. He has given us a table to celebrate and to remember until we reach that final table where we will celebrate and remember for eternity. Let us thank Him for that and let us prepare our hearts to share in the Lord's Supper. Our Heavenly Father, we praise You and we thank You that though we were in far greater danger than we could even comprehend, You delivered us far more thoroughly than we really understand. And we praise You, God, as the founder of the feast, the One who provides the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Thank You for that and pray that we would rightly understand it and be moved forward in thankfulness, joy, and faithful remembrance because of it. We pray this in our Savior's name.